Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning. We start just a little advert for School of the Bible. So, uh, not this coming week, not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, uh, we'll start School of the Bible on a Tuesday evening. So, it's an overview of the whole Bible in in a little bit less than a year. So details will be sent out, but uh, we'll do it in person and online. And uh, it's always been a great help, so I've been told. So (laughs) uh, I'm sure it it will be a benefit. It's uh, uh, really, really important to understand how the whole Bible fits together and uh, God's, God's redemptive story. Uh, So please, please sign up for that. I wonder if I were to ask who here finds uh, prayer difficult, how many would put their hands up? I would certainly put my hand up. Um, and, and in my experience in talking to other believers, I think it's true of, of all Christians that we, we do find prayer difficult. Uh, I'm constantly sort of ashamed of my prayer life or lack of prayer. And I think it's easy to make people feel bad about their prayer life. I remember one pastor, a famous pastor, said, uh, prayer is like breathing for the Christian. And he was sort of saying it should come naturally. And I I disagree with that. I mean, the disciples had to ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. I think that it's not natural to us. It's difficult for us to do. And when we come to this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, it's a prayer of David. And prayer is very important for the chronicler. In First and Second Chronicles, the, the books that we're going through at the moment, uh, prayer is a prominent theme. The chronicler is trying to encourage the Israelites. These are the Israelites who have returned from exile in Babylon. Uh, God had judged them for their sin. They had been exiled. They, many had been killed. The temple had been destroyed. And now they had returned in dribs and drabs to Jerusalem. They had... Uh, tried to rebuild the temple, and it was, you know, nothing impressive. Many of them had lost hope. They thought God had forsaken them. They thought there's no hope for a, a king anymore. And so the chronicler is writing to encourage them. And one of the ways he does that is through prayer. Because when we drift from the Lord, we stop praying. We think, well, what's the point? He doesn't listen. Everything's falling apart. And so the chronicler very strategically places these important prayers throughout uh, his writings to encourage us to pray. And so let's read through this section. So it's First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16, and learn some lessons about prayer and also our response to the gospel. So verse 16, 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things, in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So just some background, if this is your first time here, uh, last week we looked at the first half of chapter 17, what is called the Davidic Covenant. So David is the king of Israel and uh, he has united the kingdom, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and he's built a great house for himself, very fancy home. And he looks at the Ark of the Covenant in this tent and he, he says, well, I want to build the Lord a house. You know, I want to build a house for the, the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne. And uh, he tells the prophet Nathan this and Nathan thinks it's a great idea. But then that night the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, go and tell David, he won't build me a house, I will build him a house. And so we saw how it's a wonderful picture of the gospel uh, we are not saved by, by our works. Uh, God does not need us. It's not what you can offer the kingdom. Uh, we often think like that, don't we? You think, sure, if only that person got saved, what a, what, a, what a blessing for the kingdom. You know, that person is so gifted, or that person has so much potential. Just think. Well, God doesn't think like that. Uh, he doesn't look at you and think, sure, you've got potential for my kingdom. I think I will choose you uh, or anything. I'm sorry, sorry uh, to offend you. Uh, he, he set his love upon us in eternity past. Remember Jacob and Esau, before they had done either anything evil or good, God loved Jacob. Uh, and so it is in God's 
character. It is within the secret um, mind of God why he has had mercy on those he has had mercy upon. But it is certainly not because he needs you or me or because you have something to offer the kingdom. It is simply his grace. And so when the Lord says to David, I will build you a house, uh, and, and he's not talking about a physical house, but a dynasty, an everlasting dynasty. And that, as we saw, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel, the true David, David's greater son. And the, the Gospels introduce Jesus as a descendant of David and the king of Israel. So after this, David is blown away. Okay. After this amazing good news that he receives. And that brings us to our passage. So look at verse 16. Now we're going to see David's response really to this, to this good news. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And so he goes into the, ark, into the tent of meeting. And this is remarkable uh, if you're familiar with the scriptures. He sits down in the presence of the Lord and begins to, to pray and says to the Lord, Who am I, O Lord God? But what is remarkable is that he sits down in the presence of God. Quite startling. Uh, the Bible tells us a lot about the posture, the physical posture of different people as they come into the presence of God. And so oftentimes people will fall down on their faces. Okay. They, will, they will be totally broken because of their sin. They'll fall down on their faces and just cry out to God to have mercy upon them. Or they will kneel before the Lord as they pray. Sometimes they will stand out of respect but I don't know if there's many places in Scripture where we're told someone comes into the presence of God and sits down. Okay. But here we, we have it. And I would say to you, you know, all these postures are important. There should be a time in your life when you do fall on your face in the presence of God. Uh, not that you, know, you have a vision of God or anything like that, but an awareness of your sin. Awareness of my sinfulness, and I'm just broken before the Lord. Lord, please have mercy upon me. Forgive me. Um, there's a story of one pastor who battled so much with anger. His family said they could hear him pray, and he would lie in his study, on the floor in his study for hours, crying out to God to help him with his anger. That's the idea. Lord, help me with this sin, this trial. So often we just give in to it. We don't fight. But sometimes that fighting will cause you just to lie on the ground. Okay. And then to stand and pray. We sang just now, show us Christ. And really that should be a prayer. Many of the songs are prayers. We're asking God to do something. We stood out of respect and reverence. And we asked the Lord to, to meet with us. And other times to kneel. Kneel on the side of your bed perhaps or by a chair and again uh, these postures are all important. But I love this, that David comes into the presence of the Lord, and in this situation, he sits down. It's, it's the idea of a child coming to a loving father. So sometimes with my own children, I do see myself as a loving father. So <laughs> uh, I can speak to them. Uh, 
Sometimes they need to stand. It's serious. They've done something wrong, and, and I'm talking to them about it. And it would be disrespectful of them to, to sit down, to park off, uh, because this is, this is a serious matter. But ordinarily, I want them to feel that they can just come and sit down, that they're at absolute ease, they're in a safe place, they're with their father, they, they, they know they are loved, they can sit down and talk about anything. And that's the picture that we have here, that David, after this good news, after God saying, I, it's not what you can do for me, David, it's what I will do for you, David is just set at ease. Do you see that? He, is, he, he, he just knows the love of God, that God would, would be so kind to him. He does not come into the presence of God with fear and trembling. And that's an, there's an appropriate time for that as well. But in this situation, he's coming to a loving father and he sits down in the presence of God and begins to talk to God. Now look at verse, jump down to verse 25. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. There it is, the good news. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Isn't that amazing? See what David is saying? Lord, this good news that you've revealed to me has given me courage to come and pray to you. Maybe that's where you're, you're at the place where you, you, you don't pray to God. You don't have the courage to do that. You don't come to him anymore. You don't cry out to him. What, what changed it for David? It was the good news of what God was doing for him that enabled him to have the courage to come into the presence of God and sit in his presence. And so... The, the title for the sermon is How to Respond to the Gospel. And so what I want to say to you is, it may well be that you are not praying and that I'm not praying as we should because we're not thinking enough on the gospel and what God has done for us. It's more what we need to do for God and then we feel bad and then we don't pray. Well, I'm useless or this or that or I asked for this and you didn't give it to me so we think God didn't answer so I... What's the point? Instead of meditating and focusing on the gospel, what God has done in Christ for me already, that I can come as a son or a daughter of God into his presence, knowing that he loves me, knowing that how, can, how, can, how do I know? Well, I look to Calvary. How do I know that he loved me? Well, he spared not his own son, freely gave him up for for you and me. And so I can come into his presence. So that's the first thing. Meditate on the good news of the gospel. The more you do that, the more you will come to the Lord in prayer with joy, without fear, without sinful fear. Notice what David says. He asks these uh, rhetorical questions. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And so he begins there, comes into the presence of God, sits down, begins to talk to God. Who am I? And, and my house, my family. And so the first thing you need to do uh, as we come to the Lord 
is an awareness. Now, this is a rhetorical question. What David? David is not saying, who am I? I know I'm amazing. Okay? He's not saying, I'm the greatest. I know that. I killed Goliath. I killed lions and bears. So, of course, it's appropriate that I receive these things. Not at all. It's the exact opposite. He is, he is amazed. How can someone like me be blessed so much? Who am I? That you, O Lord God, Jehovah God, the Creator God, the Sovereign God, would show such kindness to me, such grace to me. So the, the place to always begin for the Christian, and if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved by God, is to begin with humility. If you come with pride, God resists the proud. Okay? God will resist you. You will receive nothing from God if you come with pride. If you come with God owes me, if you come with I'm actually, you know, I'm pretty great, uh, I'm not such a bad person, God will resist you. That is pride. The first place is to humble yourself. Okay? Now, this is radically countercultural. It goes against everything. You, you will, you know, on, from TikTok to WhatsApp statuses to Facebook to Instagram, everything is about self-promotion and how amazing I am and all the lyrics of the pop songs are all how amazing I am, how great I am, uh, you know, it's my life, I'll do what I want, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, uh, you know, people who are not that attractive, I'm the most attractive, uh, I'm the greatest, people who, I don't know, I suppose we'll get soon, you know, where I could sing, I have a six-pack, uh, <laughs> uh, all lies. Uh, so, uh, but that's the world that we live in. It's all self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, uh, and, and, and the Scripture comes and says, no, you're nothing. You and I come from the dirt, and we will return to the dirt. The only things that are good about us is that in some ways we have, still have the image of God. That is the only thing that, that means we have some value. But in ourselves, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. In ourselves, we are dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses and sins. By nature, we are children of wrath, of judgment. That is what we deserve. It's not unjust judgment, it's just judgment because we sin and we sin willfully and we sin gleefully and we sin bountifully and we keep returning to it. And so David here is saying, how is it that you could be so kind to me? Who am I? And you remember David was a nobody, even his own father forgot about him. When Samuel goes to anoint David as king, he comes to his father Jesse and says, you know, uh, you know, one of your sons is going to be anointed king. So he says, well, it must be, the, it must be my firstborn. He's tall and handsome, must be this guy. And then he says, no, okay, it's my secondborn, must be this guy. And he goes through all of them and then it's like, no, it's none of these. Jesse's like, sure, I don't know. And he says, don't you have another son? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's looking after the sheep. He's... Uh, he was, he was nobody. He did everything in secret. He didn't go around, you know, when God did strengthen him to kill lions and bears, he didn't go and boast about it. When he goes to fight, his brothers are mocking him. You're a nobody. They, didn't, they never killed lions and bears. 
he was a nobody. People, even his own family, didn't think much of him. The same as the Lord Jesus Christ. Weakness. And we know a great sinner like us. And yet the Lord lavishes his grace upon him. And that's what he has done in Christ for us, the true David, the fulfillment of this covenant. That he loves us. But we are called to humble ourselves. To see, you need to see yourself as you truly are. Okay? And so we begin there. And, and let me tell you, it's liberating. It's not a pity party. It's liberating. You see, the more, the more you understand the bad news, the, the better the good news is. Okay? The, the, the worse the, the condition, the worse the disease, how much more glorious the medicine that can heal it. Okay. How much more rejoicing over, over the healing. And so it is. Uh, this is not, you know, we just go around morbid saying how useless and terrible we are and, and, and ironically become self-righteous in that way. This is liberating. Lord, I, I don't even know my sins properly. Every now and then, I, I see something really ugly, and I'm like, where did that come from? But the Lord tells me it's in your heart. Okay. But then I'm like, well, thank goodness there's a God who has forgiven me and knows all of these things and, and goes much deeper, knows all the things I don't even know yet about myself, never mind the sins that are culturally acceptable. And yet he still loves me and has lavished me with his, his grace and so it's liberating that you can say, Lord, how could you love me? How could you be so kind to me? Verse 17, And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. Uh, this is a very difficult passage to to translate in, in Hebrew, and there's several translations, and I'm not a, a, a Hebrew guru, but my, my uh, Hebrew lecturer was a Hebrew guru, okay, so, <laughs> and is still, and um, he, he translated it like this, and I really, really like it, uh, you've, you're welcome to disagree with me, it's fine, it's not a hill to die on, but what, so what David, this interpretation says, David is, is amazed, Lord, you've shown me the future, my future generations, future mankind. Uh, so this dynasty, this house that you've shown that will continue. But in Hebrew, mankind is Adam or Adam. So it can be translated as Adam or mankind. And my, my lecturer said, it could be translated as David saying this, you have seen me according to the Adam who is to come. You have seen me according to the Adam who is to come. Now, uh, maybe for some of you that's really weird. What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in Romans that Jesus Christ is a new Adam. Okay. The first Adam blew it, okay. sinned, and death passed upon all. But the second Adam, against all odds, he was not born into a paradise. He was born into a wilderness. 
everything against him, people forsook him, people betrayed him and denied him. He never sinned, never gave in to temptation, even though he was tempted in every way, as you and I are. It's very important to know that. He was not a superman. He was truly and really tempted to lust, to greed, to anger, to capitulation, to giving up. He was tempted, even as, as we are. And yet he never, ever sinned in thought, word, and deed. And so he conquers death, rises from the dead, and starts a new humanity. He is a new Adam. And all who are in him are part of that, what the, Bible, what the church fathers called a new race. Okay. Part of the church of, of God. And so if this is a correct interpretation, you see it's prophetic. How is it that God can be so kind to David? Have you ever wondered that? How can God forgive people in the Old Testament before Jesus has come? Well, theologians use a fancy term, proleptic. means back from the future. Okay. Uh, it's, what they're saying is that Christ, uh, that the Father, God, applied Christ's redemption that was still to happen backwards to those in the Old Testament. And so, David is saying, you have seen me according to the Adam to come. You have seen me in Christ. That is how you can be so good to me. That is how you can forgive me. Now, we are this side of the Adam, the second Adam who has come, Jesus Christ. But how is it that God can be so good to us in spite of our sin? He could be unjust, an unjust judge who says, don't worry about it, but that's an unjust judge who just lets us go free. That's not what he's done. He has punished Christ in our place so that we can go free, so that the fine is paid. If you're a Christian, you are seen in the Adam, the second Adam, who has come, Jesus Christ. You are in him, the Bible says. That's why you, have, you and I are treated as sons of God, because we are in Christ. And so again, if that's the correct interpretation, pointing to the gospel, how is it that God can be so kind to us? How is it that he can give us eternal life, forgive our sins, give us meaning and purpose to life? It's because of the second Adam who has, has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, and what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. According to God's heart, this was his desire to, to do this. And so David says in verse 20, there is none like you, O Lord. And there is no God besides you. Okay. This is what theologians call the incomparability of God, that God is incomparable, cannot be compared to anything. So again, you want to, you want to grow in holiness, you want to grow in your prayer life, meditate on the attributes of God, on who God is. He is incomparable. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. It's not that David is saying there's none like you, Lord, just that our God is, you know, sort of a, a unique God, but there are other gods. No. There is none like you, and there are no other gods besides 
the true and living God. There's a sort of this idea often, I think, amongst Christians that sort of, you know, yeah, there are there are other gods in other ways, but you know, our way and our God is the best out of the group. That's heresy. The Lord Jesus did not say, I am one door to the Father or one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. The only way to the true and living God is through Jesus Christ. He is the only God. And he is incomparable in his being as Trinity, in his attributes of holiness, righteousness, justice, that he is omnipotent, that he has all power, that he is omnipresent, on every single one of these words, you could spend ages just thinking and meditating. So let me encourage you, get us a good systematic theology to help you to think on the attributes of God. There are free ones available. But start to think. Let your mind be stretched, okay? Do you know that God is everywhere at the same time? And he is fully present everywhere at the same time. It's not like he's like a goop that sort of spreads everywhere. And then he has to move to different areas. You know, his you know, sentient parts of him have to go there. <laughs> no, he is fully present everywhere, equally, all at once, past, present, future. Okay. Think on that. Think on the fact that God knows everything. And he knows what could have been as well. Never mind just what is. He knows all things perfectly, comprehensively. You and I know nothing comprehensively. We know things truly, but not to its fullest meaning. But he knows everything comprehensively, perfectly, and immediately. Not, I know, I know that one, I know that one. Just give me time. I, I, no. <laughs> He knows everything instantly. Billions of people can be praying at the same time. And he doesn't have to sort of put them into an order. I'll come back like, I, you know, when I get just a heads up. If you send me a voice note, uh, I take it you don't need a response, okay? <laughs> I'm going to come back to that much, much later. I can't do it all at once, and so just so you know, rather send me a message instead of a voice note. Uh, but God, is, I mean, we can't even begin to imagine. Imagine a billion people talking to you at once, and yet, no problem. These are some of the attributes of God that should blow our minds that say, who is like our God? He is not... We don't, we're not just monotheistic, we are monotheistic, but we believe in God who exists in three persons, and each person is fully God. So our God was never lonely. Other monotheistic, monotheistic religions, logically, those, their gods have been lonely until they made us, or made angels. Our God was never lonely. Those gods could never love our God has always loved. Intra-Trinitarian love. We even use words like always, but he's outside of time. We say eternity past, 
But there was no eternity past. He's just always existed without time. God created time. Again, we can't wrap our minds around that. For us, everything is a chronological sequence of events. But all of these things, it should cause you to worship. Say, my Lord and my God, who is like you? There is none like you. And then Swinock, one of the Puritans, he, he's, he, I think he, he did sort of 60 sermons on one verse on the incomparability of God. He says God is incomparable in his being, in his attributes, in his works, and in his words. In his works. Who is like our God? Which God would voluntarily enter into this world in a human form and experience shame and humiliation and agony and hell, the wrath of God, so that we might be redeemed. Okay. The Greek, Greek and Roman mythology, often the gods would come in human form, but that was to seduce people and to kill people and do bad things. We can understand that. That's, you've got superpowers, you're going to abuse it. But our God does not, this is not some sort of we're guinea pigs and it's just seen what happens. He enters into this world not as a glorious king in a mansion and a palace with a great army, but he enters in in suffering so that he might redeem his people. Who is like our God in his works? And then David turns and we look at verse 21 and who is like your people Israel? So notice, see what he's saying? Who am I? So meditate on your own unworthiness that you might rejoice in God's grace to you. Meditate who is like our God. Meditate on his attributes. And then who is like your people Israel? Meditate on the people of God. So here in the Old Testament, it's the nation of, of Israel. But remember, the nation of Israel was also made up of Jew and Gentile. There are many stories in the Old Testament of Gentiles coming into the people of God. Think of Rahab, Uriah the Hittite, Caleb, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was a Kenite, but brought into the, the people of God. So he, he thinks about God's, God's, the people of God. He says, who is like the people of God? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people making for yourself a name for great and awesome things. And then he starts to, to meditate on what God has done for Israel, driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Remember God's great deliverance with the plagues and this powerful deliverance from slavery. And it's the great Old Testament paradigm for redemption. And so for us, what does it mean? We were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh, the pride of life. We were slaves to the devil. We were not free. If, you, if you're here and you think, no, I'm, I don't want to be a Christian because I want to be free, you're deceived. You're not free at all. You're bound in your sins. And so he remembers, God, you delivered us and you gave us victory over the, our enemies. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord God, 
and you, O Lord, became their God. And so as we follow the story through history, it is God, all the way through history, God has been saving Jew and Gentile, and he will do that until he returns. And so we can also now look at the people of God, what Paul calls the, the true Israel, the Israel of God. He calls the church the Israel of God, the people of God. And so we should also look at, Lord, what have you done? You have saved a people. Now this one is where it becomes a bit harder, isn't it, right? Because you start to think, yeah, but that guy's also in the church. Uh, or, you know, the church has done some bad things. It's harder to delight in the church, but you need to see the church as the Lord sees the church, as his bride, as beautiful, okay? as his people, and that he's preserved the church. You know that throughout history, the devil has tried to destroy the church in every single way, through false teaching, through persecution. He's just tried through seduction, that the church would compromise and fall away. And many have fallen, but they were not true, the true people of God. Throughout this last two millennia, he has preserved the church. It's an incredible thing. The church is made up of people who still sin. We do, we, we, we do bad things. We hurt one another. And yet he has preserved the church. It, it feels sometimes like the church is just hanging on by a thread to me in the world. But it's not like that. The church is on the rock Christ Jesus. It will never be destroyed. Okay? It is his church and he will keep it. The reason it looks like it's hanging on by a thread is because of us and so that he gets the glory. We'll never get to heaven and say, well, the church was great because we had all these great people. No, the church is great because we had a great savior. He laid down his life for us and preserves his church. And so we are taking people in next week. I hope you read those testimonies. See, that's, that's this. This is, Lord, you've taken, you've taken people and you've, you've destroyed the enemy in their heart. You've destroyed that old nature. You've redeemed people to yourself. These are trophies of, of grace. And it's glorious. So read them. I encourage you to read them. And next week, uh, make sure you hear... And we see baptisms, all of these things to, to say, Lord, how great you are that you, have, you continue to save men and women and children. You keep taking people out of darkness into, into light. We want to see many more, millions more in Johannesburg. We want to see you saving people. But you have, you have preserved your church for these 2,000 years in spite of all opposition, persecution, and own goals that we score you have preserved the church and he's making her beautiful and ultimately she'll be perfect in every way without spot or, or blemish. And so rejoice in the church. Rejoice in all the stories of grace. Okay. This, this person. And you know, we, we often think, well, I, if I was God, I wouldn't have chosen that person. I wouldn't have chosen me, I can tell you that. And then you think, Lord, you, you, you're not a respectable person. You, you save from every nation, every, every culture, every ethnic group, every language group. You save. 
You bring people together to worship you. And every story is different, eh? Um, The one testimony I read, it was an unbeliever who told someone to read the Bible and they got saved through that. How bizarre is that? That's how God works. He saves and he works and he works in all these wonderful ways and takes us out of our futile former lives and gives us meaning. And so to help us to properly rejoice in the gospel, rejoice in the gospel in other people's lives, rejoice in that God is building his church And we come to the end, verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. And so now he prays, Lord, do what you've said. And that's how we're to pray. Pray according to God's will. And God, as we know, fulfills his, his promise. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we are not looking forward to, to a, a son of David who will come. He has already come. He's coming again, but he has come. We know who it is. It is the Messiah. It is Jesus Christ. He has answered David's prayer. He has done what he said he would do, and he always does what he says he will do. Verse 24, And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Verse 26. And now, O Lord, your God. Sorry. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Again, that can be translated, that last bit can be translated, for it is you, O Lord, who are blessed, and you are blessed forever. I I prefer that. Um, David ending with blessing God, and God is blessed forever. And so this is the story, redemptive history. God, in, in grace, humbles himself, comes down to earth, human form, to redeem a people to himself. And we will praise him forever. He is blessed forever. So let me, in this past week, it's been such a blessing. I, I intentionally, in my study, I have a nice couch there, and I went and just sat. I did this. Okay. Uh, so I, you know, it's, whatever I say to you comes to me first. Okay. So I don't think the preacher gets away with it. Uh, comes to me first. And you know, it was so beautiful just to go and sit and just speak to the Lord and think on the gospel. You know, Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today, I need to spend the first seven hours in prayer. <laughs> okay. It's a bit of hyperbole, but you get the idea. How, what, do you, what do you think? Just start your day, sit in the presence of the Lord and think on the gospel. Think on what he has done for you. Think that would change things? I guarantee you it will change things. Not, I've got, a, I've got my list, I need to tick my, all these boxes and what I can do for God. But begin by resting in what he has done. Lord, how amazing that you had mercy upon me. How amazing that you've saved 
your people, that you're building this church. How incredible, all these different stories. And yet you've set your love upon them from eternity past and you're bringing them together. How amazing are you, Lord? Think about his attributes. You see, then it leads to worship. It leads to, to praise to God. And so may I challenge you with that. Try it this week. Find a quiet place and sit in the presence of God and think about the gospel. Think about what Christ has done. The gospel, the gospel is for believers, okay? It's the fuel, as I mentioned last time. It's what you and I need all the time. You don't grow, outgrow the gospel. It's what I need every day is to know that I'm perfectly loved by God and perfectly forgiven, even though I'm so unworthy. Amen. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Davidic covenant. We thank you that it has been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is such a powerful picture of the gospel, what you have done, not what we have done, not what we have achieved or what David achieved, but what you have done, Lord. And how we thank you for what you have done in Christ for us. We do ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in each one of our hearts. We pray you would forgive us for our, our weak prayer lives. But even as we prayed and asked you, asked you before, we, before the sermon that you would show us Jesus, please answer that prayer and cause us to come to you in prayer. May we know the gospel and may that energize us to come to you in prayer that we would be a, a people who pray, even as, as you said, Lord Jesus, that your house would be called a house of prayer for all nations. Help us to delight in you, Lord. Help us to know who we are in you. And help us to love your people, to love your church. In Jesus' name, amen.